Hello there, I am Toby Haydock. I am the person you employ if Mark Gatiss isn't available. You could say that I'm in the Conference League of Gentlemen. And usually, I'm recording this link very early in the morning, uh, way before it's uh, time for me to meet my victim, because it's actually a tight leap from the train. I'm not recording my link on a train uh, to his house. Uh, it's a peculiar one, this one. Unorthodox. Late at night, earlier in the year, a couple of weeks ago, I was watching a huge Doctor Who clip compilation that keeps me happy on lonely nights in uh, much the same way as the skin of the dead does for a serial killer. And up on one of the clips popped the person I'm about to see. And in the heat of the night, I tweeted. I, went, I like him. Anyone got a contact? I wasn't expecting much, and I'm sure in the cold light of day I would have raised it, but there it was, and within 15 minutes I had a contact uh, via a successful novelist, whom I've also never met. And days later, uh, this person coming up, and I had a 1am email exchange in which he rather worryingly used the words Travis and Bickle, and now I'm going to his house. So I'm a bit scared, to be honest. Uh, I genuinely get very nervous um, when when meeting people one-on-one. -on -one. And so I've, I'm currently discovering that the colour of adrenaline is brown. Now, he seems like a lot of fun, and he gamely agreed to talk about Doctor Who with the nobody, me, for no money. Um, but this isn't a showbiz contact. This isn't a friend of a friend. This isn't even a professional booking. It's essentially a man I stalked online. Hope he doesn't keep his fans in his cellar and sacrifice them to the career gods, because he's had a pretty illustrious one. So, flattered, daunted, but I have to be honest, rather heebie-jeebied, off I go in my space hopper. But, um, look, the apprehension on this one is, is genuine. I have to say, this never gets any easier. But I'm trying to serve up what you fans have ordered. May my bones rot for obeying you. Right, I'm in a coffee shop. Uh, we've got coffee, we've got peppermint tea, we've got lemon cheesecake, and we've got a complimentary copy of the Daily Telegraph that we've both put on a different table. Uh, so I'm going to ask my victim who he is and why on earth I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Well, I'm Kevin McNally, and I played Lieutenant Hugo Lang in Colin Baker's first uh, episode, or two episodes, as the Doctor uh, called The Twin Dilemma. But you were telling me just before I started, so let's start with that. You go back to the very first days of Doctor Who. You have a memory of Doctor Who starting. I do. I'm uh, 56 years old, coming up to 57. And I remember, I think Doctor Who started in 63, didn't it? Yeah. I must have been seven years old. And um, my favourite, Saturdays were my favourite day because I would watch the wrestling. And then at 5.15, I think, was the slot... I would watch a series called The Telegoons, which was an animated series of characters based on the, the Goons, the famous Goons radio program. And it was my favourite television show. And because I was only seven, I didn't watch the listings or even follow the plots of things. So at that age, series suddenly end and you've got no idea why. And I'm sitting in the living room waiting for The Telegoons to come on. And suddenly this insane sort of raw shock uh, picture appears on the television, the original black and white Doctor Who, and I burst into tears and ran to my mum saying, 
I can't find the Telegoons. What have I got? The... And she says, no, no, it's finished. This is a new series called Doctor Who. You might like it. And I sat there very angry. And there was this young girl at school with her teacher. And her grandfather shows up. And I think, this is really boring. And the next thing, you know, I can't remember why it happened. She gets whisked off into time and space with her grandfather, played by William Hartnell. And it was either at the end of that, you know, it would, have, it would have been the second story. I think the second story was the Daleks. And I remember at the end of the first episode, they were in this uh, building on some other planet. And I remember running into my mum saying, they're about to be attacked by a man holding a plunger and a ray gun. Because as I remember, I could be wrong, um, that the first shot of the Daleks was a POV of a Dalek with the, with the plunger and the things plunger, coming yeah. at him. So... Um, but of course, by then I was completely hooked, and I went through Hartnell, and then uh, the, the initial shock of, of it suddenly being the rather ethereal and spooky um, second Doctor, who of course was um, what's his name? Patrick Troughton. Patrick Troughton. Then the third Doctor, of course, was John Pertwee. I was getting a little bit older, and then Tom Baker, while I was you know at drama school and in London, was a bit of a sort of a joke to us. Although, of course, the greatest ever. And then it took me two more Doctors before I finally appeared with Colin Baker. But interestingly enough, one thing I wanted to say was how crap English television was and how, how what a failure um, in many ways uh, um, multi-channel television has been. Because when I first moved into my house here, I remember I'd just installed cable and there was a television channel and I turned on the TV just before we were going to bed about 10 o'clock and there was the first episode of Doctor Who. And I sat there and watched it and thought, that's really taking me back. Five in the morning, I'm still watching the third series. It's an all-night Doctor Who session. They don't put stuff like that on the television anymore. Because they, because they, I think basically they refused to put black and white stuff on the television. Now, that was what cable television would have been good for, stuff like that. But I suppose you can get it all on the internet now, so it doesn't matter. Now everyone who listening will agree that we should have Doctor Who on the telly, we like that. Um, but before you got to um, Colin Baker, um, you did actually manage to kill Patrick Troughton in Survivors. Oh, I did, yes. It was a tragedy uh, for me, really. Um, I think it was the second episode of the second series of Survivors, and uh, I did indeed kill Patrick Troughton, which is a terrible thing to have to do. Although, strangely, I never met him um, during the filming of it. I can't remember why that worked out. But I think it was discovered later that this old guy was dead and plainly this young punk had done it. Yeah, so you... I just enjoyed saying young punk in reference to myself there. <laughs> yeah, it was you and Brian Grellis, another Doctor Who alumnus. Kill oh. it. You killed Roy Herrick as well, another Doctor Who alumnus. You were killing the cast of Doctor Who. Can you tell me whatever happened to Brian Grellis? Oh, he's still with us. Oh, fantastic. I've been trying to find him. I really like that guy. Ah, well... And I've been trying to find him for years... Right, well, you've met the right person because um, I, I will find him for you and I will put you in touch because that, that is what good. I do. Brilliant, thank you. Uh, cheesecake, yeah. way, not a stroke. Yes, we're just letting him finish his cheesecake while I rack my brains for how I can get Brian Grellis, but I will. That's a task. Good. Another task for me to perform. Mm. Um, Brian Grellis, well, listeners... You'll be interviewing him at some point, won't you? Are well, you hope... everybody? Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, listeners, Brian Grellis was in Revenge of the Cybermen and the Invisible Enemy and Snake Dance, if you're wondering to whom we refer. Now, um, before killing Patrick Troughton and before meeting Colin Baker, you got the gold medal at RADA, so... And you'd, but you'd worked professionally before that. You'd been at yeah. Birmingham. Did you come from an acting background, or how did the bug bite you? Um, well, it's a good question. I didn't come from a theatrical background. I think um, 
I think I've thought about this often, and I, and I think, of course, it's all based in burgeoning sexuality. Because when I, my dad's work used to take up to the age of eleven, they took you at Christmas to a Christmas party, and then after the age of eleven, they took you to a pantomime. So I went to a pantomime, and I must have been twelve. And in those days, they used to have binoculars on the seat. And I, for some reason at the age of 12, was utterly fascinated by rather scantily clad girls in the chorus. And I think that's when I fell in love with the theatre. I thought, if I could be backstage with those girls, I think I'd be the happiest man alive. Um, it was either that or the first time I saw a pinter play. I can't remember which. It was one of those. So, so it was either the art or the semi-nudity. It was one of the yeah, two. One of <laughs> and so, rather, getting into that is no mean feat. Getting the gold medal is no mean feat. And you sort of hit the ground running. I mean, your, your early TV credits, you know, things like I, Claudius, big productions, and, all right, not massive parts, but good parts for a young actor to be playing. Yeah, absolutely. So was, were the periods of uncertainty, or did, you, did your career sort of start on the upward curve pretty quickly? Uh, yeah, pretty pretty much, as you say, hit the ground running. I, I, I've been very fortunate, but and I, I think I can say this without too much worry, because nowadays, obviously, as, a, as an elderly actor, um, you know, I work and I don't work, but I, you know, I have plenty of work each year, and I, I'm pretty stable in my work. But I never really had any periods of unemployment, unbelievably. It was something I didn't have to deal with. I think there were about... I can remember about three times when I was out of work for about five weeks and didn't have any money and thought, you know, I really have to get a job. But in terms of suffering, what most people go through, I, I never, ever had that worry. There was always a turnover of work and money, and uh, I've been very fortunate in that way. But those things like I, Claudius, and you were talking about the first Doctor Who, and even when you did The Twin Dilemma, it's a very different way of making television, apart from soap operas, to how television is made today. Yeah, completely. And you know, the other thing is that, that in those days, it was also centralised, and you could do a hell of a lot of work in one year and still not make a great deal of money. I mean, we weren't paid... You know, when I hear people whinging about things now, we weren't paid a great deal of money, and there were certainly no trailers and no cars picking you up. You know, they, they, they turned over television in a factory. Um, remarkably, some of it, like I, Claudius, done with incredible vision, is still incredibly watchable. Um, I did another TV series in the late 70s called uh, um, Poldark, which was hugely successful. But frankly, if you watch it now, it's sort of unwatchable for a number of reasons. One is that the sort of style of acting is in between theatre and TV. It's certainly not screen acting on the whole. Um, the sets are incredibly shaky. Even though we, you know, we had tape and we were recording, we weren't playing live, they let an extraordinary amount of technical mistakes go, including camera bumps and moves. And for me, um, and I know for many people who are purists, I could never understand how the public couldn't see the difference between studio work and the exterior film work. For me, it's completely unwatchable, that break uh, in, in, uh, in tone, texture and rhythm. So it's, it's bizarre to look at that work now. Um, but, you know, I do feel privileged that I was part of that. You know, we would go to the act and rehearsal rooms and there would be, at lunch, the cast of every television series on TV, including light entertainment. I can remember being entertained by Bob Monkhouse, who was... I don't know, he must have been bored. He thought he'd entertain some young actors with some jokes. I mean, that was an extraordinary crucible to grow up in. Um, 
I don't think that Golden Age is missed that much, though. I think because we do get a chance to see that stuff. But unless it's something that really, really lasts, like Doctor Who, because of its ideas, I, I think the aesthetic of that television is something that we, uh, people would find very bizarre to watch now. But then you as an actor had to make that transformation from a style of television acting that owed more to theatre to a style of television acting that made that owes more to film. Um, and, and did the successful actors prosper with that, or did you, did you have to pick that up very slowly? Did you make some mistakes along the way, or did it just happen? Certainly made some mistakes, and it's rather interesting if you... If you uh, people like you were very interested in this and are very knowledgeable about it, you'll notice that there is, around the middle, at the beginning of the 80s, there are a number of careers that started and died who didn't make the transition. I started quite a lot in the 80s as well as a, as, as a new, uh, um, a new more filmic acting was applied to television, um, and I managed uh, to pull through that and restart another career in a way but I do see it as two I actually took up writing in the 80s because I realised that there was an awful lot of shit around and I really had to reinvent myself as an actor so I, I, had, I didn't want to be in the position of having to take every job that came so I started writing for television and that sort of saw me through about a six year period when I could sort of reinvent myself and start again and just before Doctor Who, I mean, you were, you were, you were plugged on Doctor Who as, you know, the, one of the two main guest stars, you and wonderful Morris Denham, and you were the man from Diana, and I remember Diana was a show that made a big impact, and yet has yeah. not been repeated or released on DVD, but I remember at the time it was big news. Yeah, it was. It was the third in a, a three-series... I think the reason is because uh, I, I think it was very patchy as a series. There was a, this, this, the middle section of it during the war was very exciting and liked. I don't think the beginning, the end of the series was that successful. It was the third in three series of R.F. Delderfield books, the first being uh, To Serve Them All My Days and then The Horseman Riding By, uh, John Dottine starring in the first one, Nigel Havers in the second. And I don't think it did quite the figures that they did. I still, though, to this day, don't know why, unlike those other two series, it was, well, it was released on TV, uh, on video, but why it's never been released on um, on DVD or or online? The one thing I will tell you, I found out the other day from a fan of mine in America, is that there is a Diana fan club, and it's been going for twenty years. And I thought, oh, that's really nice. And then I I, I turned off the computer after talking to her, and then got furious. Then why have they never been in touch with me? <laughs> <laughs> it was, you know, I was the lead in it, but they've never got in touch. But apparently there's a, there's a lot of people who still like that series out there. But yeah, so I was doing, you know, I was doing, there's a very funny story about that actually. I was making Doctor Who and we, we went over one night uh, doing the interiors of Nestor's Palace. And I said, oh, Diana's on, I really would like to watch it. Uh, it's like the third episode or something. And you know, the BBC at that point couldn't find a television that would receive BBC One. And I was unable to watch the show. That was a pre-digital world that we lived in. Good old BBC. So, of course, that brings us um, to Doctor Who. And um, first, I think the surprise for anybody listening to this is, why the hell did you say yes to this? A strange man you've never met before said, can I talk to you about one tiny part of your career? Well, I suppose because, like the idiot who's asked to talk to me, I, too, am uh, a, 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 um, an OCD geek. 
And I, I'm fast. I, I find it very hard to watch movies nowadays because I have my iPad Mini in front of me, and every 45 seconds I go to it to get the history of the person who's just come on, you know. And it's, or in fact, Phyllis just says you, you can't watch television with me while you've got the I, Mini iPad in front of you. I mean, it's annoying even just to hear it clicking beside me. And and I think one, and I do appreciate when people get fascinated by one thing because in a way. Um, I think you get to a certain age and you start to take stock of the things that really interested you or inspired you or fascinated you. And I'm fascinated by the, the whole uh, Doctor Who thing because of, you know, I have those memories, those very clear memories of it starting. And also when I was offered this role, I was 28 years old and the thing I most wanted to do was go inside the TARDIS. And I can remember almost being disappointed as I opened my eyes that it wasn't bigger inside than on the outside. <laughs> but it was great fun to go inside the TARDIS. And, 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 and the great thing about the episode I was in, we worked at the quarry that served as every planet from one end of the galaxy to the other. So that was great fun. So you've got a quarry, you've got to go inside the TARDIS, and you've got to herald in a new doctor, Colin Baker. Colin Baker, bless him, he's such, he's such a nice man and uh, I had great fun with him and Nicola Bryant I guess a couple of years ago doing the, um, the, the, DVD. the DVD commentary um, and I was rooting for him of course in I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here he was remarkable really, I only found out later that we, I think we started rehearsing in January he was very excited about the job, and I only found out years later that the Christmas before he'd started, he'd lost a child in a cot death. And I remember thinking what wonderful equanimity to carry on, and to... I mean, it must have been an awful time for him. But I found him the most delightful man. There are stories that I can't even tell you about. <laughs> but some that I can, like, he was such a trusting soul. I remember wanting to go off and see somebody and going, I haven't got time. And he lent me his car. I mean, I was... Plainly not a trustworthy young man. And he lent me his car so I could go off at lunchtime and go and visit a friend of mine. I don't know, to score marijuana or something. I don't know what it was. Um, but he was a dear, delightful chap. The only downside to all this, of course, is I understand from the internet websites that uh, The Twin Dilemma is universally regarded as the worst episode of Doctor Who ever made. And I, and I think I had a sneaking suspicion of that while we were making it. Um, it was sort of ludicrous. What, what, was it, what is it about the Twin Dilemma, do you think, then? I'm glad you know that, so I didn't have to break it to you. What, what is it about the Twin Dilemma that you think that, that sets it aside for such an illustrious uh, accolade? Well, I think there are a number of... There are a number of reasons. Um, one is it a terrible baddie, Nestor is truly appalling and unfrightening baddie. Um, another element was, and I'm sure they won't mind now, because I actually met one of them, the two twins, who are now, I think, both working in finance, were two of the worst child actors that you would ever possibly hope to see, supposed to be playing these geniuses. And uh, even despite the wonderful Morris Denham being in it, there was something about the pace of it that... Uh, it was very, very hard to, to lift up. I don't, and I haven't seen it for years, so I don't know why. Also, I think the producer at the time, um, John, John Nathan Turner, introduced... Yeah, of course you can. Introduced an element of camp to it 
that that I think slightly overloaded in that period. So I think that the campery meant that you couldn't really engage with it on a real level. And I think, you know, just as with comedy, if you don't believe it, you're not really going to find it funny. So if you're not sort of genuinely imperiled or involved in the drama of the thing, I don't think it can ever be good or scary or engaging or frightening. So I think that was one of the problems. But, you know, I mean, it wasn't my finest hour as an actor, I can certainly (laughs) say that. Um, Do you think Colin's costume was a hindrance in that regard as well? Not so much as mine was. I mean, (laughs) God, I looked like a sort of dream sequence char lady, as I remember. Um, You know, Colin's costume would have been fine if it hadn't been for... You know, and I liked his I liked his sort of um, uh, Harpo Marx look, um, but I just I just think that that the, the, the production had lost a sense of what the show was at that point. I don't know how the rest of those episodes, uh, the rest of Colin's tenure went. I don't think it got much more exciting, really. And he was the penultimate doctor in that the BBC years, wasn't he, before yeah. Uh, Sylvester? Yeah, yeah. And the, the other thing was they just come the, off the back of a very swish production that saw Peter Davison out, and I think Twin Dilemma was given to Peter Moffat, who was always considered a safe pair of hands in that he would get it in and get it on time, but not perhaps the most dynamic director on the BBC's books. No, I mean, no. And as I remember watching the DVD, it is as dull as Ditchwater to watch. Uh, but... You know, in a way, what are we talking about? We're talking about 1984. It's exactly slap, bang, at the beginning of the middle of that television um, revolution. And in a way, a science fiction program, studio-based, was sort of destined for failure. It had had a sort of a slight renaissance with Blake 7, of course, that... You know, is partially a joke and partially worshipped by its fans... But it, we, I just think that the whole genre's uh, days were numbered, really. But it's interesting, because what gave me the, the, the cojones to drop you a line, because we'd never met before, and we have a mutual friend who I've also never met before, was that I was watching, and I just remember listening to that DVD commentary, and, quite a lot, and I've done a few of those, and quite often the actors come in, and, and quite often they're all happy to be there, but usually it's, oh, this was a bit quaint. And you really engaged with it. You came into the DVD commentary, there was none of, oh, I've done loads of other stuff. Um, you deferred to Colin. You, are, you sort of took on the role I do on the commentaries often, which is to moderate and to ask the right questions. And I was just really impressed how an actor of your stature who's done so much since then just came in and just went, I'm going to treat this with respect. And so that's why I thought you might oh, be interested good. in doing this. Well, uh, that's good. I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, either you agree to do things or you don't, but don't agree to do them and then not do them, certainly. And uh, I also was aware that, you know, there are a lot of people who... Uh, love Doctor Who and so it would be disrespectful I think to do anything else and take it seriously really and also I've got a lot of time for Colin and uh, I, I, I think I was a bit concerned that Colin and um, as I remember it's coming back to me now and that Nicola wouldn't really know what to say or would, or would descend into anecdotage so I thought I could maybe keep them a bit on on song about what we were trying to talk about you know well it's good it's a good one um, I must listen to it. I've never heard it, actually. No, it's good. It's no. good. Um, and since since doing that, you've added an R to your name. How did that come about? You're now Kevin R. McNally. That uh, happened in 2003. I just um, 
I'd just done my first Pirates of the Caribbean film, and I went to uh, SAG in New York to join up uh, the union. And lo and behold, they said to me, you can't. I thought, oh, well, I can't join the union. No, you can't join the union as Kevin McNally. There is already a Kevin McNally. I'd never heard of him. Actually, I know him quite well now. He's a rather nice chap. He doesn't work that much, but he's Dick Van Dyke's uh, stepson. So I had to, on the spot, think of what I would do about this. Well, I wasn't at the age of 46 going to have a different name. So she, she saw I was in a bit of a problem. She said, have you got a middle initial? And I went, yeah. She said, we'll use that. So I became Kevin R. McNally. It was uh, actually when I got back, I spoke to the actor John Sessions, who's a friend of mine, and he went, "Oh, you missed an opportunity." He said, "He said it's the wrong initial in the wrong place. You should have called yourself X Kevin McNally," <laughs> which I now actually use for my Twitter uh, account. Um, and if only I had have thought of that at the time, or you know, or Kevin McNally X, that would have been good. It's Kevin McNally the tenth, that would have been great. <laughs> But it, it sort of proved a lot of confusion over the years. You know, when I just go by Kevin McNally, but when I'm billed, I, you know, I'm, I couldn't be billed one way here and another way in America. So sure. it's just really a union thing. And uh, tell us about Pirates of the Caribbean, because what's the process of getting uh, a part? Because that's a major, a good, good part in a major film that's gone on and on and on and on. So what sort of process would you have had to have gone through to get that part? Were there many auditions and screen tests and things? No, there weren't, actually. It was very funny. I... Um, I think the audition for it fell on my birthday. And um, I say audition, it was a question of going to uh, a casting director um, and learning a little speech and going on tape. Well, I'd been on tape for, I don't know, 40 major American feature films. So that was against it. You just thought, well, they do this, but you never get cast a cold calling in a feature film. It was also a pirate movie based on a ride, and I thought, well, uh, nobody's going to get a DVD or straight to video. Nobody's going to do that. And it was on my birthday, so I was drunk in my back garden. And a friend of mine said to me, don't you have an interview today? And I went, oh, yeah, I think there was this. I said, I'm not going to go. It's no point. And she said, no, come on, you can't do that. I'll drive you. So she drove me to Chelsea, where this thing is, and I was unshaven and really at the wrong end of a bottle of vodka and I did this audition and went home and completely forgot about it and then about a week later uh, my agent phoned me and said um, they want you to do that pirate film the director's going to meet you tomorrow and I, I said I said what the fuck are you talking about what pirate film he said you went for an interview and I went oh yeah I did yeah so I went in, and the next thing I knew, I was in this ridiculous pirate film. And it, it sort of just came completely left field. Of course, I got to... Well, I then found out that Johnny Depp and Jeffrey Rush were in it. So I thought, oh, well, actually, maybe it's not the pile of audio that I, that I think it might be, because they make pretty good choices. The next thing I know, I go to the States, and I'm in the middle of this... Massive production. I mean, you know, I was expecting maybe a little bit of studio sets and a bit of blue screen. You know, and I'm being taken out to sea in these ships they've built. I, mean, I couldn't believe what was going on around me. And then, of course, the first film did so well, and it's been part of my life for ten years now. It's, it's an extraordinary thing to happen to you. And I, I've always just reminded myself to enjoy it. Neither let it go to your head, nor be falsely modest, you know. 
Well, and one thing you, you let go to somebody else's head, which you, I think you're anchored in TV history forever, because you stuck Lisa Faulkner's face in a, a vat of boiling oil. Uh, and spooks. You, you probably know this, but that is the sixth most complained about moment on British television. I only know this because I, I did a show a number of years ago where they, they had the 12 most complained about uh, moments. Which is sort of odd because I really admire the director of that because we had no time and we had no effects and it was also pre... Was it pre-Watershed? I don't know. Anyway, there was a certain level of stuff they couldn't do. So Lisa didn't even have any makeup, but people remember her face coming out fried in fat and you never, ever saw a shot of that. It was all done by brilliant editing. Uh, in fact, I was, I was doing a reading of a TV... You know, they do these readings to try to sell them to TV of this thing many years ago. And this guy came up to him and said, uh, Hi, we've never met, but I know you really well. And I said, Oh, why is that? He said, Because you boiled my wife's head in fat. <laughs> I know you're married to Lisa or boyfriend or something. But it was very funny, just after that happened, it happened about three times. I was sitting on, I was standing on the tube, and young drunk men would shout from the other side of the tube, I'll have a portion of chips and a piece of cod, please. <laughs> and I got that quite a bit. Yeah, it was funny. But it's great to be part of that moment because it, it was a it's a moment everyone remembers. People still talk to me about it now. Yeah, it's a great part as well. Bo's lovely part, yeah, yeah. Well, I've exceeded my 20 minutes, so I'll be very quick, but uh, I, I, I've, I got a message. I got a, you're very kind. I, got a, uh, I, I texted a friend of mine who's a fellow fan who's a comedian. I said, it's really exciting. I'm going to meet Kevin McNally. And he sent me a text of all the things that you've done that you wanted me to ask you. Obviously, you've played Alan Bennett on stage opposite Maggie Smith. Uh, you've done the Pirates of the Caribbean that we've touched on. You were in Conspiracy, that that uh, do, 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 dramatized documentary about the, um, the oh, t- terrifying but uh, brilliant, wonderful ensemble piece. But he wants to know about your performance as the sex shop owner in Bottom, <laughs> Mr. Sex. Yeah. Do you know he shares that with my son? That being his favourite performance I've ever done. And in fact, he watched it the other day. Um, that was damn funny. I knew Rick because I'd done an episode of The New Statesman and we got on terrifically well, as we still do to this day. And they got in touch and just said, there's this really small part. And I said, oh, I don't know whether I want to do a small part. He said, and Rick found me up and said, yeah, but he is called Mr. Sex. I said, I'll do it. <laughs> and he said, and we'll give you one joke. <laughs> Well, you've done, you've done Doctor, you've done James Bond as oh, well. The oh. good thing about that is I got to watch them at the end of that. I think it was the last one they recorded. Or, I don't know. But at the end of it, I watched them record the title sequence. You know, the... Sh- the yeah. And yeah. they did it twice, and they used the second take. It's my contention to this day that the first take was better. Well, let's see that as a DVD extra somewhere. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, that, that, by the way, was Phil Paget, the comedian who wanted to know about Mr. Sex. Um, that's between him and his bedroom. Um, so you've done James Bond, you've done Doctor Who. Um, is the, are the, do you have unfulfilled ambitions? Not saying that James Bond and Doctor Who were ambitions, that was a bit of a <laughs> downbeat segue. But. Yeah. Um, I, I don't... I mean, I have a few specific roles that I want to play in the theatre. Um, as far as um, general ambitions, I mean, the thing that I'm most thankful for is that because I have never uh, had a, a jag of success in my career, 
I always feel there's plenty to strive for. I mean, it's been an extraordinary sort of... I mean, I'm hoping to become a sort of national treasure about 86. Although, um, according to uh, Lorraine Kelly, I am already a national treasure. I keep in my wallet a little piece she wrote in The Sun saying that I was a national treasure, which I told her, actually, last time I saw her. But the great thing about not having, you know, some big thing, and I'm talking about big things like, you know, becoming Bond or, or something like that, is that not only do you not experience the jag of the high, but you don't experience that jag of the low, you know, as well. So um, I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie, so I think it's quite good that I don't get overexcited about my career and I just generally keep working hard and doing the things I want to do. But I, I, I do seem to be in a position where I can sort of do things that I want to do, which suits me very much down to the ground. Well, that's brilliant. And finally, before, and thank you so much, um, um, uh, Doctor Who's 50 this year, about a message for the Doctor Who fans listening. Um, well, if you can get as much pleasure out of watching Doctor Who as I got from standing inside the TARDIS, then uh, you're going to have a really great time. Kevin and Ali, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. That was brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. My thanks to Kevin. What a nice fellow. I'd better be mercifully brief as that conversation covered a lot of ground. Alas, so dazzled was I by Kevin's openness and generosity that I've got to ask him to nominate a charity. So how's about uh, we go back to our first podcast and uh, Steve Mansfield um, and Susan Moore. Now, they were interviewed before I thought of this charitable element, so they didn't get to nominate one. So I've Facebooked Steve and... Uh, Steve has asked that you donate, if you so desire, to um, the Alzheimer's Society. You can find them at alzheimers.org.uk. That's A-L-Z-Z if you're in America, although we should really talk about that. A-L-Z-H-E-I-M-E-R-S.org.uk. And uh, do that thing if you so desire. Anyway, what a coup! Uh, we're only a couple of weeks in, and I've already got someone that has made my son jealous and rather chuffed about, which in turn makes me quite a chuffed dad. Anyway, how am I going to top that? Well, for my next trick, although for a forthcoming trick is what I have to say now, because um, these might not be released in the order that they're recorded for various technical and boring reasons that I won't go into now, but I'm sure Andrew Pixley will in 30 years' time when he chronicles the making of this magnum opus and has written about everything else to do with Doctor Who that's even vaguely important. Um, uh, so, uh, f- coming soon, from Big Finish, uh, no, from Toby Haydokes, who's round, uh, we have two interviewees for the price of one, a husband and wife, no less, with eight episodes of uh, Doctor Who and two Doctors, maybe even, actually, a whiff of a third between them. Which stories? Well, I'll try not to give you too taxing a clue, otherwise you'll be guessing forever, and then you'll be in need of something to prolong your life. Those are the clues. Anyway, that's it for now. Thanks for listening, and I'd just like to thank, before I go, Sarah Pinborough and Robert Ross, because without them, Kevin and I would never have met. So thanks.
coming soon from Big Finish Productions. People fear change, no matter on what planet or in what universe you find them. When we were in the Axis, things were clear. We were there to find a home to save ourselves, if not our Gallifrey. But on that journey, I lost everything. I'm just trying to make things right, Leela. Whether it's by improving this world or helping us to get back to our own Gallifrey, that's all I want to do now. Make things right. But what if they find out the truth about you? There is another matter, my lady. Oh? It relates to you and Chancellor Narvin. What about us? You were a more ruthless character then, Romana. And now, a substantial new prize for the first proven breakthrough into time travel. When the path is complete, she will come and she will guide us to the White Lands. Soon. These are the stories of children. The slaves up there, they formed some kind of sect. More of a cult, really. Some religious nonsense about a savior coming to take them off to paradise. I believe that she's coming here to look out for you all. To take you away if I'm no longer able. I've seen something similar. Tharrells. Time sensitives. As far as I can gather, scientific ethics on this Gallifrey are not much to write home about. One more push is all it needs, Lady President. And then you'll have your time travel technology as you wanted. Ravon is talking about an invasion of their territory. A covert military operation. A necessary measure with as little collateral damage as can be hoped for. Against fellow citizens of Gallifrey. Who have chosen to live separately from the rest of society. If politics teaches us anything, Narvin, it's always have an alibi. Five. Four. No! Three. <sighs> two. One. Until the next time. I do not guarantee there will be a next time, but I hope there is. <laughs>